0: Hello, this is Dr. Amy Lindsay, and I'm here to remind you that the information in this podcast is not medical or other professional advice. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. You should not rely on anything you hear as a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional who is familiar with your personal situation. Listening to this podcast may, however, give you a sense of belonging, make you spit take your coffee, realize that DJs can do more than play music, uplift you during a shit day, teach you that sometimes doctors swear too much, or remind you that you are not alone.
1: We are joined today by Nicole McNichols, who's an associate teaching professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Washington in Seattle, where she also received her PhD in social psychology. Over the past six years, Nicole has built her class, the Diversity of Human Sexuality, into the University of Washington's largest and most popular undergraduate course in its history with over 3,000 enrolled students each year. Her current research focuses on teaching methods designed for human sexuality, and in 2019, she delivered a TED Talk entitled Students on Top, a Guide to 21st Century Sex Education. Great title. Nicole is frequently a guest lecturer and speaker regarding topics in human sexuality. She was at the forefront of the University of Washington's push to adopt and develop active learning techniques and technologies to bring scientific subject matter to life in the classroom. She's an active member of a variety of Societies for Teaching Human Sexuality and is a three three-time Distinguished Teaching Award nominee. We are both UW grads, and I do not remember this class because I'm pretty sure I would have been in it, and so would have my wife, I have no doubt. So, Nicole, welcome to the Doctor (laughs) and the DJ podcast. How are you? Thank you.
2: I'm great. How are you? Thank you
0: so much for having me on today.
1: Yeah, we're really excited to talk to you. And uh, Amy um, had so many questions. We want to get to them right away, if you don't mind.
0: I know. I have so many. I just want to get right into it. But first of all, go Huskies. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and we should mention, Huskies, our, we have a new dog. And throughout this podcast, people are probably going to hear our dog. We've decided not to hide the fact that we, we do this at home and we have a dog at home.
2: I also have a dog. So it is possible I will have the same issue. But uh, I love that we all love dogs here. So I think we should be good.
0: <laughs> so, Nicole, I wanted to ask you how you got into being the sex professor at the University of Washington. Like, what brought you to that field? That is a great question, because it is not the case
2: that I grew up as a young person thinking that I was going to be a sex educator. It really is something that I kind of um, found myself in almost by accident. Um, So... I was in graduate school. I got my PhD at the University of Washington in 2009. And during that time, I was in the social psychology department, um, but frequently would be a teaching assistant for Lois McDermott, who taught this course before me for about 40 years, I think. And uh, I really developed quite a close relationship with her. She really kind of mentored me in a variety of topics, even though sexuality was not an area that I was actively researching. It just was a class and her style of teaching was something that really kind of inspired me and I felt like I had a lot to learn from her. And so then flash forward a number of years and I am a new faculty hire within the Department of Psychology at UW. And Lois has an accident and she falls and she breaks her leg. And this is literally two weeks before winter quarter is about to start. And The department is kind of freaking out because there are 400 students who are enrolled to start taking this course and they have no one to teach it. So being the new person in the department and wanting to prove that I was a team player and that I would teach whatever it was they needed me to teach, uh, I volunteered. And I really uh, felt like it was one of those situations where literally the night before each lecture, it would be Lois and I... On the phone with her, basically downloading whatever the next day's lecture was into my brain. You know, I describe it a little bit to, um, you know, people like actors who are in movies where they have fight scenes, and in the scene it looks like they really know what they're doing, but it's only because they've memorized that particular sequence of events. I felt the same way in my lectures. I sounded like I knew a lot about what I was talking about, but it was only because I had really learned that particular lecture very deeply. Uh, so you could say. I had a bit of imposter syndrome. Um, But then I had an amazing time teaching it. The course evaluations were really positive. Uh, And then a year later, Lois said, you know, I'm going to retire and I'd love for you to take the course over for me. And, uh, you know, I had just found that I had such a connection to the students. It was really a course where I felt like I was helping students so much. I think that the college years are such a time when uh, students are really discovering themselves their identity, their own sexuality. And um, so yeah, it was something that I enjoy teaching for a variety of reasons. And the, the timing just kind of worked out. So here I am.
0: <laughs> so it wasn't, you didn't like dream of being a sex prof as a little girl. It was more nope. like, you sort of fell or Lois fell. <laughs> yeah, you, you, stumbled, <laughs> you stumbled on it and grabbed it and ran and it sort of chose yeah. you in a way. Yes, I would say it chose me. Exactly. So I would imagine there's a lot of misconceptions about sex at that age. A lot of diverse misconceptions. So what would you say are the top misconceptions about sex? Well, I think that a lot of the misconceptions that I
2: encounter about sex stem from the fact that there really has not been any kind there, there is not federally mandated sex education. So the decision about whether students are going to receive any kind of sex education in either middle or high school is left entirely up to the states. And until November of last year, there was no state mandated sex education in Washington. And so what that meant is that the majority of students who were coming into my class really had no background, really had no understanding. So the misconceptions oftentimes just came from the result that they were growing up in families or cultures or towns or, you know, just geographical regions where sex was really viewed as this taboo subject, where you didn't talk about sex, where there was a lot of shame that really enshrouded it. And so, for example, they would come into the class thinking that I often get the question of, you know, is masturbation bad? And if I masturbate, is that going to make me not desire having an actual real partner? So we talk a lot about masturbation in my class. And actually, there is strong research showing that people who masturbate actually have more and more satisfying sex with their actual partners, that it's not something that detracts at all from their sex life, you know, in real life, IRL. Uh, and it's something that um, actually is correlated with Self confidence, and that it is a positive thing, not something that you should shy away from or think is bad. And it's important to do to, you know, understand your body, to understand yourself, to understand what feels good to you. Because until you understand your own body and what is going to satisfy you personally, how on earth are you going to connect with a partner and be able to communicate those needs and desires and wants and fantasies to them? Um, and then the other area that I really see kind of fueling a lot of these misconceptions just comes from pornography. So the average age now that children start watching porn is 11, which is somewhat astounding. Um, And if you think about the types of images and things that kids are seeing on porn now, they do not in any way represent reality. So I also teach my class, I am not against porn if it is made and delivered in an ethical way, meaning if it involves actors and actresses of whatever gender who are actively participating in a way where they are happy to be doing what they're doing, were they being paid a fair wage, were they're not being forced to do things that are against their will. Porn can be a wonderful way to enjoy fantasy and again, to kind of explore what is it that excites you, but it is not meant to reflect reality. So I see a lot of students coming in whose really main, you know, exposure to sexuality topics has been by watching porn. And so they think that, women are supposed to have huge, enormous breasts, and that men are supposed to have huge, enormous penises, and that for sex to be really good it needs to be aggressive and it needs to be you know kind of confirming these dysfunctional gender stereotypes that you know fuel our society of how women and men want to be treated and and that it goes on for hours and that you know the woman is going to have multiple orgasms easily the first time and it just kind of sets up these expectations that yeah if you're looking at it as a fantasy that's great but if you're going to be measuring your own real experience against that as a model you're going to be deeply disappointed, right? And you're you're not going to really have a sort of an idea of what people want and how real communication works. So yeah, so I would say main misconceptions just come from what real bodies look like, what real sex looks like, what masturbation looks like. And, you know, pretty much every topic that we could talk about is <laughs> imbued with misconceptions when it comes to sexuality. Sadly, just as a, a result of the kind of society we live in, which is that people don't like to talk about it everyone's so embarrassed about it that everyone kind of usually harbors these ideas that just don't really reflect reality so
1: have you been teaching this uh, class through the pandemic
2: i have
1: that that gets me to what you just talked about cuz i have to assume on the pornography and on the masturbation tip there's got to be a lot of that going on right now cuz there is i it mean is-
2: There's a lot of alone time right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and it's interesting, you see things like Pornhub, you know, opening up. I mean, they definitely benefited from the pandemic and, you know, kind of had a a series of clever ads out about how, you know, they were going to open up their, their, a lot of their Offerings for free. I don't. I don't know exactly what the terms were, but uh, yeah, I think that people are masturbating more, and I think that there is. It's really interesting to see how technology has kind of played a role in all of this because, I think that there has been. A lot more of, uh, you know, I get a lot of questions from students who are trying to stay connected to significant others who are in, you know, different places and they're both quarantined at home. And so how do you use, whether it be FaceTime or whatever, you know, technology you're using to kind of maintain that connection and to be able to have some kind of sexual experience where it may not be in person, but at least it, you know, it's coming closer than, than you know, simply being on the phone. Um, But the other thing I've really seen with the pandemic that's just so disheartening is, you know, at this particular age, it's just so important for developmentally, you know, kids slash young adults to be out there meeting people, figuring out the kind of people they're attracted to, developing the types of social skills that, you know, are necessary for flirting and forming relationships, whether they be for a one-night stand or a long-term multi-year relationship. and. Students are being denied those experiences, and they're lonely. I mean, I've just talked to a lot of students who are very lonely and who are also, frankly, just suffering from touch deprivation. I mean, simply being at home and not being able to have any kind of physical contact with Other people who you would normally be able to at least even just hug or, you know, have any kind of contact with is, you know, a real form of serious deprivation. So
1: is there research out there? Is there um, information on what happens to people when they have a year without human touch?
2: Well, um, there are not particular studies on a whole year. But there was an interesting, uh, very famous social psychological study that was known as Harlow's monkeys. And so Harlow was the experimenter. And, you know, a lot of research that we see that's done on human behavior, a lot of it, you know, first kind of if it would be sort of if there would be ethical questions performing it on human beings, sometimes we'll perform it with monkeys in more controlled settings. So in this particular setting, what they did is they had a mommy monkey and the mommy monkey had a bunch of baby monkeys and they wanted to know, you know, what, what are sort of the most basic primal needs of the baby monkeys. And so what they did is they created a cage that kind of had two little compartments. And in one compartment, they put just a wire kind of shape of a monkey covered in cloth and it had food and water with it. And then in the other compartment, they had a wire monkey, but this monkey was warm and it had like a little um, ticking thing that made it sound like it had like a little heartbeat and it was really cozy, but it didn't have food and water. And they found that all the baby monkeys gravitated towards the warm fuzzy mommy that had the heartbeat rather than <laughs> the one that had food and water. So what that means is that this need for touch and comfort and nurturing is almost even more primal than, you know, that for food and water. I mean, it really is high up there. So yeah, there has been a lot of research showing that, you know, touch is absolutely essential that that we are, you know, social beings by nature and that that is really something that, you know, it kind of comes right above food and water in terms of how badly we need it.
1: Well, I worry about everybody coming out of this pandemic and just going, just crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's just. Oh, I know. I mean, is that a, <laughs> I, I don't even have a question. I just, I'm just wondering. You know. I, I, I
2: hope so. I hope yeah, everyone well, good. goes crazy. I mean, <laughs> I hope everyone's having as much safe, consensual sex as they possibly can and want to and desire. So, uh we'll, we'll see. Um, I mean, the other side of that is everyone's so used to it in this like camera off mode. Are students going to come back in to campus in the fall and feel like everything's very awkward and that they've been away from other students for so long that they have kind of forgotten how to interact with each other? Uh, I'm hoping we'll if that happens, we'll all get over that stage quickly, though, and it'll just be a giant party. But we'll see.
0: you know, we've been talking about this pandemic and um, we were talking about pornography and masturbation. And if when we come out of this pandemic, if we're all just going to basically have a big giant orgy or not, or, you know, what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and <Yep. laughs> but I wanted to um, go back a little bit to porn and talk about, you know, as a woman, right? Women are characterized very differently in sex in our culture, right? Like women are, yeah. are, and especially in purity culture. So I was raised in like a very religious family where it was all about no sex before marriage, masturbation's bad. Like I, I didn't know, you know, I was definitely a, like yeah. a victim of purity culture, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's that whole uh, slut shaming women and like women aren't supposed to love sex and you and I think that sends so many confusing messages to women who do love sex and who do want to participate in it. And I think it feeds non-consensual sex because they don't know how to advocate for their own sexuality and advocate for their sex and they don't understand consent. And then going back to what you were saying about pornography, it's rare in pornography that you see a consensual conversation happen, right? Right. So there's a lot of like aggression in the pornography. I'm
2: so happy to hear you make that connection between sort of the lack of, you know, a a sort of permission that we give to women to express their desire for sex, to be honest about their desire for sex, to be able to be authentic and feel confident about being sort of forthcoming and the fact that we have so much non-consensual sex sex happening because, you know, essentially what's happening is we're teaching women that they they shouldn't be honest about what they want and what they need. And yes, there are so many stereotypes out there that suggest, oh, women aren't supposed to want sex as much as men, that men are supposed to be the ones that desire sex. And that's simply not true, right? Women have, you know, just as much of a sex drive and just as much of a right to have positive, happy sexual experiences as men do, as all genders do. And, And I think that we're really setting up problems in our culture if we teach women that they're supposed to be coy and they're supposed to be shy and they're not supposed to be honest about that because, you know, again, then it's back to this problem of, well, how do you communicate when you do versus you don't actually want to have a sexual experience? And so if we're teaching women that they should always be saying no, and if we're teaching partners of women that... Even if a woman is saying no, she may actually mean yes. It's just that she has to always say no. Then how do we know what anyone ever means, right? And how do we know what, you know, how to interpret any kind of a response? And, you know, of course, the answer to that needs to be that no always means no, and that maybe always means no. But we have to give women permission to also say, yes, I would love to go home and have amazing sex with you tonight, right? And, and enjoy that and not feel guilty about it. Um, There's a Christmas song that I play every year for my students, even when it's not around Christmas time, that is, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Mm. And that song... (laughs) I know what you're going to (laughs) say. Yeah. I mean, and people get really worked up about this, right? Because for a lot of people, that's their favorite Christmas song, but go onto YouTube and Google, baby, it's cold outside and listen to the lyrics and you can even watch the little video that, you know, that, that goes with it from the movie that it came from. And it is a, it is a song and a scene of sexual assault. I mean, it is essentially a woman who's saying she wants to go home and her partner saying, no, 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 baby, it's cold outside. You need to stay here. But again, there's sort of this confusion of, well, she seems like she wants to stay, but does she want to go home? And is she saying she wants to go home because she feels like it? But no matter what, if she's saying she wants to go home, the male partner is still kind of trying to, you know, almost bully her into staying. Um, so I love the Kelly Clarkson. Why am I Kelly Clarkson. blanking on her? <laughs> Kelly Clarkson. Thank you. And John Legend. They do a fantastic remake of that song where they, you know, he keeps saying to her, if you want to go home, you should go home. It's your body, your choice. You should enjoy it. It's a really charming song. And at the end of it, she decides to stay, right? I mean, that's kind of the the irony of all this is that if you, if people have permission to say what they want and to be honest about their sexual needs and desires and wishes, then everyone wins, right? And then it, it means that we can say no to the sex that we don't want to have and that we can say yes to the sex that we do want to have. And I think these communication problems that often lead to these really bad situations are just, you know, kind of get
0: cut down. So that takes me to something like BDSM. Mm -hmm. So I'm of the belief that it can be a really great healing space for people, Mm -hmm. whether you're a dom or not, or whether you're submissive or depending on which role you, you prefer. And that it's a place where people can access healing. Like real healing of some deep wounds and that can span not just sex and wounds with sex, but wounds in their life or give them like a safe place. And I just wanted to know what your take on all that was. Yeah. And what you're saying is actually really backed by the research. So BDSM can be a safe
2: place where people reenact scenes and oftentimes may even reenact traumatic scenes from their own life where now they can kind of control what the outcome is going to be. It's almost kind of like the ultimate cognitive reframing of thinking, well, I'm going this time, I'm going to live through this and I'm going to be able to kind of change it in this way and have control in the same situation and get myself back into my own body in this situation. And, um, you know, that's we I talk a lot about BDSM in my course, and I have a lot of students report to me that they've had that very experience you've talked about. You know, I see I definitely think BDSM is much more common now than it was even five, ten, fifteen years ago. I actually have a whole panel of guests who come to speak in my class every quarter uh, who talk about BDSM and their experiences in it. And I think that, you know, when you mentioned misconceptions, you know, again, I think there's this idea that, BDSM looks like what it does in the movie Fifty Shades of Grey, right? Which is right. actually involves a lot of sort of you know power differences that really yeah, and non consensual
0: bullying and, situations. <laughs> exactly, exactly.
2: Um, and so that is not what BDSM looks like, right? Like BDSM, when practiced the way it's supposed to be practiced, is safe it's consensual it has two people who have are coming together who have the same amount to gain to lose Um, there's really good communication probably even better communication than you'd find in non-bdsm sexual experiences there are safe words so that people know when you should stop something versus when you want something to keep going and Yeah, I think that that all kind of introduces this element of control and safety that can absolutely be very healing for a lot of people.
0: Just for our listeners who may not know what BDSM is, can you tell us what it is? Yes, of course. I guess I should have started with that. Um,
2: Well, the irony is that no one is really quite sure what BDSM stands for. There are a lot of options. So B is bondage. Typically, everyone agrees that B is bondage. I think D is actually usually the dominance. And then S is like sadism. And then M is usually for like masochism. But there are all different sorts of variations on those words. But essentially, it's power play so usually one person kind of takes on the role of being the more dominant person. And then the other person will take on the role of being the more submissive person. And it is about two people who are, usually playing out some sort of scene where one person is explicitly following the instructions. Usually the person who's being dominated is following out the instructions explicitly of the person who's giving the instructions. And so this might involve things like whips or chains or tying people up or using a variety of different types of sex toys. Even though one person within the scene is always following the instructions of the other person, there is a safe word. So for example, there could be a scene that two people are acting out and maybe the code word is red, but the code word can be anything. It could be spaghetti. Uh, And so if you yell out spaghetti, the scene stops and it's a sign from one person that they just don't want things to continue. And people who participate in this, they report going into something called subspace, which is um, almost like this endorphin rush that you get from being in this place psychologically when you're acting out these roles. And what I, when I talk about BDSM in my class, it's, you know, it's interesting because people may think that this is something that only some people practice, right? That, that it's a, just this kind of strange, weird thing that only exists among people who are into, you know, chains and whips. But actually the psychology behind it really shows up in common threads throughout all of our lives, right? It's really about. Kind of understanding what your limits are and sort of this desire that is really is kind of quite primal in all of us, which is to sort of see how far can we be pushed, right? How high can you jump? How hard can you run? You know, how, you know, can, w- what happens when you get pushed to your extremes? Because that's really what's happening in a BDSM relationship is you're taking things, you know, whether it's inflicting pain right up to the point where a person is at that limit, right? There's something really exciting and exhilarating about that for some people that is, you know, not just related to sex, but can also be related to people's desires to kind of understand their own limits and their own human experience. So You know, and then just a lot of people who, for example, enjoy being in the more submissive roles, oftentimes those are the same people who feel like they have a lot of responsibilities in life, that they're in charge of making a lot of decisions. And so, you know, being in a position where you're being told sexually exactly what to do and when to do it can feel really, you know, different and exciting and also relaxing to that person. Uh, And vice versa for the person who's in control. I mean, there's something really exhilarating about being the person who's sort of calling all the shots and deciding exactly what your sex slave is going to be doing for you and with you. So, um, yeah, so I... I think it's something that being, you know, I see being explored more and more by my students and it has, I think, a lot of benefits. It's, you know, most people during their lives will try out some kind of kinky sex. So it's, uh, I think, a lot more common than people realize.
1: So at that age, you know, a lot of people maybe aren't in relationships and maybe have more freedom to explore that. Mm -hmm. Um, do you talk about relationships and how to explore your sexuality within that relationship? Because it is it is so difficult for people if they have this. I, I can't imagine how many relationships have ended because someone had a desire or someone had, you know, s- something in their world where they felt guilty about it or they acted on it outside of their marriage without talking to their partner. And it's taken me years to figure out exactly who I am as a sexual being, like what my preferences are and what, and because I never took a class or were like almost were given permission that this was okay to talk about. And I, so I imagine if I had taken your class, I would have helped Uh, in college. It may have uh, helped for when I was in a relationship and able to talk to a person. So what is your advice to people when they, when they have, They know they have this desire they want. Maybe they want to try BDSM or maybe they're attracted to the same sex or maybe they have a fantasy and they're just either embarrassed or they think it's going to end their marriage.
2: Well, I, you know, sexual communication is absolutely key. You know, first of all, I highly recommend having these conversations, not when you're having sex, but when you're doing something that's totally <laughs> non-sexual, good, good. like doing the dishes, good right? Answer. And yeah. so, <laughs> you know, go to IHOP, <laughs> like that's the best place to have <laughs> conversations about sex, Some place that where, you know, sex would be the last thing on your mind. And, you know, it's just about being honest, right? And being able to, you know, understanding that, you know, hey, let's go talk to each other about things that we might enjoy or that could be fun to try out, you know, and maybe we can talk about things that I want to do and talk about things that you want to do. And uh, for example, I had a great guest speaker who came from the sex toy shop, Babeland, and what she described was go through and make a list and decide, you know, go through the different things and decide what's in your yes list, what's in your hard no list, and then what's in your maybe list. And, you know, it's interesting, your, you know, your question about, you know, well, what happens if there's something that you really want to try out that uh, your partner is just really set against? And that can be a roadblock for a lot of couples and something that's sort of, you know, hard to navigate and because it's really important for You know both partners to really understand and be compassionate about what the other person is asking for and what about the other person's limits are and i think it's important to you know in those situations try to explain exactly what it is that is the fantasy and how you could see it you know being fulfilling and then allowing the other person space to talk about you know i think that would be really fun i think we should try it out versus well, here's what I'm worried about, right? Because it might be that through talking about, okay, well, what are your actual concerns and and anxieties? Are there ways to come up with creative solutions so that, you don't have to worry about those things, that, that that those things are kind of taken care of, right? There are there ways to kind of, you know, make a compromise with whatever the sexual fetish is or the thing is that you want to try out so that it, it kind of works for everyone where it can be explored, but still feel safe for everyone involved. And then there are plenty of couples who may decide that really what the right answer is for them is to open up their marriage, right? So, you know, I knew one couple where the, uh, husband, he identified himself, uh, this was his word. It was that he felt like he was an autogonophile, which is someone who is typically a heterosexual male, but who fantasizes that they have, you know, breasts and a vulva and a vagina. And he fantasized that during sex that he would be a woman and wanted his wife, to take on more of the male role and she you know they were very frank and very honest in this conversation and you know she said i don't really feel comfortable that's not something that turns me on and so they came to the decision that they could open up the marriage and so he's now able to have these sexual experiences where he's able to imagine that he has this feminine body and he can have those sexual experiences for the, for that outlet, and then he's able to come back and have other types of sexual experiences with his wife, and that works for them. Now, having an open marriage is not going to be a solution for a lot of people, but my point is just that there can be creative solutions here where it doesn't have to be, oh, well, you don't want to do this. Well, then the relationship's over and we both need to move on, You know, typically with some sort of thought and... Again, I keep coming back to this
0: idea of creativity. You can
2: find a way where everyone really gets what they want.
0: So on that tip, how do you, what is your thought on the status quo? Like this cisgendered, heteronormative, monogamous <laughs> status quo, and do you think that that's um, harmful?
1: Good I
2: do think it's harmful in, you know, this idea. So, uh, you know, just to kind of clarify, I think for your listeners, what you mean by that is, uh, you know, we live in this culture when we say heteronormative, um, what we're talking about is. This assumption that the best type of relationship is one that's between a man and a woman, and particularly one where the man takes on more of kind of the more male gendered role, whereas the fem you know, and whereas the female takes on more of kind of the role of like the wife or the girlfriend or the more female oriented role, and yeah, hey, that works great for a lot of people. And the problem is that we've come to a place where. We norm that, and we suggest that it's superior to every other type of relationship, and that's really harmful uh, because that is simply not the model that works for a lot of people. Uh, You know, you have all sorts of people who identify and understand that they are a you know gender that is not you know quote unquote congruous with their biology. You might have a person who has certain you know genitals or uh, you know certain chromosomes that you know, that led the doctor to call out one gender at birth that they identify as something completely different as an adult. You have people who have all different types of sexual orientations. Uh, you have people who are polyamorous, meaning that they aren't simply attracted to or want to be in a relationship with just one person, but want to be in relationships with multiple partners. I have a whole panel of polyamorous individuals who come and speak in my class, and they're some of the most articulate people I know. They are really able to explain how that relationship structure for them really fulfills their needs and makes them really happy. So I think again we have to get out of this mindset of thinking, oh well, that relationship, that model of, you know, a, a man and a woman, you know, in a monogamous relationship for life, that's going to work great for a lot of people, but for a lot of people it's just going to lead to a lot of unhappiness and if it's you know, if we don't give people sort of the flexibility to find the types of relationships that work for them we're just going to be causing a lot of harm. We're not going to be, you know, it it makes no sense to be forcing everyone into this one mold.
0: Yeah. I find that, you know, as a doctor, I have this really, and you might find this too, people might confide in you a lot, you know, like having that doctor Mm -hmm. relationship with people. Yeah, And they'll tell me the truth about their sex or their relationships or whatever. And I always get this big smile on my face because I hear it all the time. Like what I hear (laughs) (laughs) like behind Uh closed doors as like that uh, vulnerable doctor patient relationship is actually more normal than what people think. And, you know, and I think about this a lot, how the status quo is just so committed to that um, model. And it's so harmful because person after person after person, that that is not normal. That is not their norm at all.
2: Exactly. And so you even wonder for so many people who are in that type of relationship, how well is it working? Right? I mean, for Mm -hmm. some people it's working great, but if you're just going along in life, miserable in the type of relationship you're in, because you feel like that's the only option. And that's, you know, if you're not in that type of heteronormative relationship, that there's something wrong with you, that's hugely problematic. But I think you're right. And I think even for couples who, are uh you know look i am um a cis woman i'm married to a cis man i'm in a monogamous relationship i have three children uh you know you would look at my relationship and think yep heter- you know, heteronormative all the way but that doesn't mean that it follows a-, a script it has to be authentic to who you are to who your partner is to um you know your own individual needs and desires and you know it can't just be you know my husband Cooks dinner every night. He's a you know an amazing cook, and you know I, I don't cook. <laughs> um, we both have really busy jobs. You know we both engage in childcare. You know the idea that you're just going to kind of divide up all of the duties within you know within a household according to gender is typically gonna lead to, I think, a lot of misery. I think there there really needs to be some thought around, you know, how you're gonna kind of I don't want to say get everything done. That makes it sound like a business arrangement, but <laughs> just what your well, relationship is, is gonna sometimes. look and feel like. Yeah, it can be.
0: <laughs> so I often talk about how humans are the only animals who don't think that they're animals. <laughs> what is your take on on that? I mean, you know, so we can talk about agreements in relationships, right? You know, people have established agreements in relationships, and some of those agreements would be like a monogamous relationship. But that doesn't mean that there isn't attraction to other people (laughs) and other genders, and there isn't that going on. And I find it healthy for people who are in relationship to talk about those things freely. That, you know, to like... Talk Mm -hmm. about it and, and normalize it because I feel like it's normal. And then people get very, they get into the jealousy and they get sort of envious and they start, you know, I think it's kind of unhealthy to not acknowledge the sort of natural attraction that you might have to people. So, you know, you started out with this
2: idea of we're the only animal that doesn't realize that we're, that we're an animal. And that's really true. Right. And so, first of all, if you just, you know, start there you know, our closest genetic relative is actually the bonobo monkey. And if you look at sort of what sex looks like among the bonobo monkey, it is a very polyamorous, sex-loving culture <laughs> that you know bonobo monkeys they have sex all the time they have same gender sex they have opposite gender sex they have uh you know if they come into a situation where there's a you know a fresh kill and everyone's trying to relax so that they can enjoy the meal and not fight over it they'll have sex to diffuse tensions first um sex is a really important part of their culture it's a you know a very egalitarian It's you know there's no there's you know there's not the same kind of sexual assault that you really see with other types of primates and You know, so what does that say about humans? Well, if they're our closest genetic relative, then this idea that we're supposed to just fall in love with somebody when we're, you know, really young and only stay attracted to that person until we're 80 or 90 years old, you know, is just a little bit unrealistic. There's a wonderful book called Sex at Dawn that I I highly recommend that sort of talks a lot about kind of the anthropology behind this. And, you know, one of the points that the authors make is And if you look at most animals, the number of times that they have, you know, sex, um, you know, the ratio of that, of copulations per child is quite low, right? So in other words, most animals are usually having sex when it's just for procreative purposes. But if you look at human beings, and if you look at the bonobo monkey, and believe it or not, if you look at dolphins, if you basically, if you look at animals that have more complex, sophisticated brains; those types of species are having much more sex. Um, that's happening at all different types of times, not just when the female is fertile, um, which shows that sex is really important and is, is, you know, that we are a sexual species. And um, you, if you look at, uh, you know, anthropological evidence of hunter-gatherer societies. What you see is that really before 10,000 years ago, before we all moved into these settled city states, most human being tribes were polyamorous, right? It was this idea that you would have, you know, sex with different partners and everyone, you know, this idea that takes a village was quite literal. It was the idea that you'd have, you know, women would have children and every it would be sort of everyone's job to kind of chip in and help take care of the child. And it was not expected that you would just pair up with one person and be, you know, loyal, so to speak, to that one person for the rest of your life. And, you know, it really wasn't until we moved into, you know, again, these cities really that we started to need to, you know, have this idea that we had to control sexuality. And that's really when the institution of marriage came about because all of a sudden there's this notion of, oh, well, we can't just have people running around having sex with whoever they want because that will just lead to chaos and how can we have an organized society if if we don't have this institution of marriage where people are getting married and having children and passing down property and it really became more of a business contract but it's not how we're designed right we're designed to you know go through stages where we fall in and out of love and now that's not to say that monogamy is doomed right because love is something that's intentional you know human beings are complex so it's not the case that you just get to know somebody in the first year and then you know them forever and you've, you know, kind of completed whatever role you're supposed to have with them. If you really have this element of intentionality and get to know someone and put effort into your relationship, it can certainly stay fresh and it can, you know, you can keep that desire and that sort of sexual, you know, firework alive for sure. But don't expect that just because you have this happy relationship where you have that occurring, it doesn't mean that not every now and then someone's not going to kind of drop out of the sky that kind of grabs your attention and makes you think, wow, that person's really attractive. And, and, um, it, and, and what you do with that really kind of depends on what makes sense for you as a person and for you in your own relationship, right? I mean, some people choose to open up their relationship for that reason, um, but a lot of people feel like, you know, they're they're happy in their monogamous relationship and, you know, it might involve just kind of taking a step back and observing that and not panicking and, you know, it's something that might crop up for a reason. It may crop up, you know, just out of chance. Um But I think the authors of the book kind of make a really nice comparison. You know, they say, you know, you may choose to be a vegetarian, right? And being a vegetarian, right, which they're comparing basically to monogamy may be a superior lifestyle choice, right? It might make you healthier. It may be better for your wallet. It may be more sustainable. Um, but just because you've chosen to be a vegetarian doesn't mean that every now and then that burger isn't going to look awfully good, right? <laughs> and, and, and <laughs> right? Or that that bacon isn't going to smell amazing. <laughs> so, And so if you feel yourself smelling the bacon, so to speak, that's normal. Right. And, and that's not a reason to think, Oh my God, there must be something wrong with my marriage or something wrong with my relationship because there isn't, it's just, that's just part of who we are. So
1: how do we, yeah. how, how do we get our societies to this point? You know, cause the people I met who are feel more liberated or, um, are being true to their sexuality. Those are some of the, the happiest people I have ever had the pleasure to meet. Like, yeah. I can't imagine that's not a coincidence because it kind of encapsulates who they are. I'm, I'm guessing they are on this journey. And in most cases, they're older. It's taken a, yeah. a long time. I, and, and again, I'm coming from an American point of view here i know in other countries oh. uh, you know they know right away like and they act on it but here we're so held back like how do we get because everything you're talking about is awesome and we should be there and our society <laughs> would be better it's just how do we get there does it does it start with classes like yours does it start with education does it uh, start with how we i guess talk about sex because it seems like in our society we can't even We can't even talk about um, the basics without people getting embarrassed or that you've broken some some rule. It feels like religion and other things have just sort of like killed it uh, from the go.
2: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I I also think you're right. I mean, I, I obviously think education is such a critical place to start. Right. And we have to get to a place where our sex education just isn't just about, you know, pointing to, you know, how not to get pregnant. Right. Exactly. <laughs> how not to get pregnant. And, you know, and um, you know, this is how you put a condom on a cucumber. And uh, <laughs> these are ovaries and this is a penis, you know, class over. Uh, so we have to really get to a place where you know, if you look at the Netherlands, I mean, they've done a great job of developing and introducing comprehensive sex education. And so at very young ages, they start talking about relationships and communication and what does it feel like to fall in love with somebody and what do you do if you feel like a relationship's coming to an end? Is it appropriate to just send a text message telling them things are over or should you actually talk to them in person and how might that feel on the other end? so I think that a lot of you know our education needs to be focused on communication. And I also think it just needs to be more sex positive, right? I mean, in the US, we tend to focus on everything that can go wrong. You're gonna get pregnant. You're gonna catch an STI, right? And then there's just a series of pictures that show every, you know, the most gruesome case of every sexually transmitted infection you could possibly catch. And it doesn't talk about the pleasures of sex at all. That's and right. It doesn't talk about how to enjoy sex. And when I took sex ed, in middle school, we never learned about the clitoris, right? What's the point of the clitoris? All it does is, you know, provide pleasure in females. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. well, no biggie. Maybe... <laughs> the clitoris, no by the way, there. is huge. Yeah. It is. It's a whole huge. structure. huge. People... The clitoris yes, is huge. It, it, yes. it's a. Whole... It has I, I, feet I... and legs. It, <laughs> yes,
2: it does. It's like a whole wishbone structure. It's a exactly. whole wishbone structure.
0: And I didn't learn that till I was in medical school. Oh, my. I mean, see? That's
2: craziness. <laughs> i have a i have a film that i show uh the very first week of my class that's called in search of the g-spot which is actually a fantastic film i highly recommend it and it gets you know because one of the questions i often get from students is well what's the difference between an orgasm that you have that is stimulated from the clitoris versus the g-spot and so You know, this film is really interesting because it shows how, to your point, the clitoris actually has structures, which is this wishbone structure that wraps around the vagina. And so really a G-spot orgasm is just kind of changing the integrity of the clitoris. They're all kind of the same thing Um, and coming back to the same structure. But none of us learned that in middle school or high school. We're not talking about, you know, how the clitoris works with our middle school sex ed teacher unless we came from a really progressive school that just had revolutionary sex education. So I think that's so important. And um, you know, and then sexual positions and behavior, right? I mean, I, I spend a lot of time just I show films that, Actually, show different types of couples having actual real sex. And the technology you can have now to be able to show that from all different sorts of both internal and external angles is quite extraordinary. Uh, But I think that it's important to really teach people what sex looks like and what it looks like in different ways and shapes and forms and angles. And because, you know, we have this very romantic idea that's kind of forced upon us when we're young which is that we're going to suddenly one day walk down the street and this person of whatever gender we happen to be attracted to in perfect form is going to fall from the sky and we're going to fall madly in love with them and have incredible sex and live happily ever after in this wonderful marriage or relationship just like we see in the movies but we don't teach anyone how to actually achieve that, right? There's, In other words, there's nothing wrong with having an amazing relationship that includes incredible sex as a goal. That's a great thing to want to have in your life if that's what you want to have, but don't expect it's not going to come with a certain amount of investment and work and understanding. So yeah, you have to figure out How to have great sex? You know what you know—not just what the anatomy is, but what does sexual communication actually look like, and how do you get over being shy? You know, in terms of asking for what you really want and being able to ask your partner for what they really want. So, yeah. So I think that that's absolutely critical.
0: Yeah. So you know, we were talking about your class, but that's college. We were talking about you know, high school, middle school, and what is your thought about how parents? can have these conversations. Because I think that even parents don't want to have these conversations. And it's sort of like the bird and the bees talk, and it's about how to have babies, but we're not talking about sex. Yeah, or 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 how not to have babies. Or or how not to have babies. Or like, it's about like, where you came from. And it's, not, you know, because (laughs) sex is so much more than like, making people, right? It's a huge part of our health and who we are as a species. And so how do we talk about this with our kids? Like, what would you say to families or people with children? Well, I get that question a
2: lot. And I think that it is critical to start early to start really young i mean you're usually around ages two three four you'll have children who start to ask questions about bodies and body parts and it's really important to use actual names you know vulva penis vagina breast. not to make up sort of cutesy names because the cutesy names can tend to make it seem like oh well the real name is naughty and dirty and so that body part must be naughty and dirty you want to be able to talk about these things frankly, and openly. And, you know, when there's a sort of a valuable teaching moment, kind of jump upon it, right? So if it's a question about a body part, explaining that in a really honest, simple, straightforward way. And, you know, I think that there are A lot of great books out there that can be used as launching points that you can either read with your child or you can read them independently and then talk about them. But you know the important thing to realize is you're never you're not going to harm your child, right? More information is always better. Um, Now that's not to say that if your child is running around with their hands over their ears that you should pull their hands off their ears and right. You have to kind of wait and follow their cues and make sure that it's you know, being delivered in a way that is at the times when they are open and receptive to it, I, you know, I think everything is on the table. And I think having conversations about consent early on is critical. And, you know, at an early age, just teaching a child, you know, your body belongs to you and your sphere of privacy belongs to you. And having somebody violate that and touch you in ways or show you pictures of things that you haven't asked to see or... You know, making you look at their body parts is not okay. And so, you know, what is the plan going to be if that were to happen? You know, do you have a trusted adult that you can go talk to? But then, you know, along those lines, it also means if you're teaching a child about consent, that, you know, back to this idea of your own sphere of privacy no, um, you're not required to give anyone a hug who asks for it, right? Now, that can oftentimes rub grandma and grandpa the wrong way. And, you know, they're asking for a hug and, you know, explain to them, no, he doesn't want to hug you back and he doesn't have to, you know, or, um, you know, I remember my son, when I had my daughter, she was taking a nap and he wanted to go up and give her a kiss while she was sleeping, right? Which is really sweet. But I had to kind of explain to him, you know, when someone's sleeping, you know, you might want to kind of wait until they're awake. And, you know, you can say, can I give you a hug and a kiss? And maybe that's a better time to do it than just to, you know, go up and plant it on her. You know, and all of these things are, they're just kind of setting the stage for what, you know, sex and sensuality is going to look like, you know, at an older age. Um, but then the one thing I want to just kind of add on to that is, It's rare that you're going to encounter someone where you're like, Wow, you know so much about sex. You are amazing at sex. Where did you learn all that? And the person's <laughs> like, I was homeschooled, right? <laughs> right? Like, we need to have formal sex education. I mean, this has to be happening in schools. This has to be happening with adults that are not the kids' parents. You know, ideally it's happening when it's the kid is in a group of other kids where, you know, everyone kind of feels embarrassed and is giggling and doesn't just feel like they're being singled out. So, you know, I know here in Seattle, for example, Swedish Hospital has a wonderful sex education uh program that they do that a lot of people rave about. But I think having formalized sex education uh that's outside the house is is really critical here.
1: So I, I took our oldest son to that. Um Children's does one and um what you're saying is so true. And it was two days, two nights. And I, you know, I feel like I'm able to talk about sex and and was yeah I, I got this. And man, the minute we got there, I was so uncomfortable and yeah. like, I didn't realize like how difficult this is going to be. And we sat down and one of the first exercises we did was this amazing uh, person who was teaching. It was like, okay, I want to hear every word for penis. And I want to hear it at the top of your lungs. People are just like, dick, cock. They're just <laughs> like screaming. And if so, if you're in another room hearing this, it's the funniest thing you ever heard. But the minute they did that, I realized what was happening. It just totally chilled the room out like because everyone's giggly and weird and uncomfortable and now we're just screaming this and then the next day we did the same thing with vagina so you had all these words just blurted out different words that they had heard (laughs) and from then on there was no giggling there was people were less embarrassed so it was everything you talked about like just getting that out of the way and Mm -hmm. i I will say too the one of my favorite parenting moments because i wasn't you know i was there and talking to him and thinking i was doing the thing and we're driving home and he says hey dad you know like here comes question, you know, and I was like, "Yeah, man." He goes, "Thank you for taking me to that. That really helped wow. me." Wow! And I thought, "I'm going to tell everyone about yeah." Like, I that means any like weirdness or questions or, or confusion he had that he never has brought up to me was probably answered or dealt with that's in that class. Wonderful. Yeah. So I highly recommend taking your kids to these because it's um, yeah, it, it was. Amazing. I've heard
2: that uniformly. Yeah, people rave about that class. Yeah, that's yeah. great.
1: Plus, anytime you get to just scream, you know obscenities in a class. Penis, like,
2: right? Yeah, why not? I don't
1: often get to sit in a classroom and scream right? penis, so
2: I do. But. Yes,
1: that's true. Lucky you. Hey, Nicole, is there? We we want to thank you for being here. Was there anything else that we that we missed that that you wanted to mention that 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 people should know? I I've, I have a thousand questions. We could keep you all day. Um, Oh,
2: no, I mean, this was such a pleasure. Um, You know, I will say if any of your listeners, um, you know, I do have an Instagram that I answer a lot of these questions on and I I post topics on this all the time. um, And that is. Uh, nicole underscore the sex prof so you can follow me on instagram and ask me more questions there but this was a total joy thank you so much i wish we were having more conversations like this in our culture i think we need them so thanks for what you're doing
1: Uh, yeah i couldn't agree more and and again that's nicole underscore the sex prof i'm going to start following you right after this interview awesome (laughs)
0: thank you (laughs) well thank you so much for your time my pleasure thank you guys